All right, Romans chapter 15. Let me invite you to stand as we read together God's Word. Every sermon starts with us standing and reading the Bible. The danger with routine oftentimes is that it becomes rote and just part of what we do. But let us not forget, this is God speaking to us. We, we, we stand because we, we see that in our society as a, as a means of honor. We, we, we stand here and we do that today. And as I read it, know that this is God speaking to you. Grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you might abound in hope. Father, I pray that that would be true here today. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, your people, every single one of them assembled here, every single one watching might now abound in hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> One of the great things about living in the South is that we have sayings, you might call them idioms, for almost everything. I found that to be especially true when I spent the seven about seven and a half years living in southwest Mississippi. For example, to emphasize that a favorite cow had genuinely died, you might say that that cow is graveyard dead. Or if someone was especially dressed up for some occasion, you might say that he is Sunday casket shark. If he looks really good, you might say, open casket. Mr. Harry Wells was telling me a story. If he's telling me something that seemed particularly difficult to believe, that it doesn't seem like it's actually the truth, in order to emphasize the truthfulness, Harry would say to me, Preacher, if I tell you that a rooster dips snuff, look under his wing. Or there's a variation of that. Preacher, if I tell you that a rooster 
can plow, hook him up. Idioms, idioms. They're, they're, ex, they're exclamation points that are used to strengthen the argument that we actually are making. An idiom, a saying, and that is really what you kind of find here in verse 8 as Paul starts out there in verse 8 and he says something like this, For I am telling you the truth. I tell you. That's a rhetorical device. It is signifying that there is something really important, that there is something especially solemn and doctrinal that's coming down the pike after he says that in verse 8. He's going to tell us something that's really important for the Christian church, and it's about the greatness of the Lord Jesus and the beauty of his mixed church. Remember, he's writing to a church in Rome, Jews and Gentiles, in one church house. How Jesus saves and sustains this, this interracial, interethnic church. And how Jesus alone actually brings people together. That's what Paul said back in Ephesians chapter 2, that it brings these two different people together and he creates one new race, one new man whose unifying, glorifying theme is Jesus is Lord. And it's that simple theme. It's that real, life-giving hope that you find right here. So for you, all of my, all of my tired and burdened and Fearful friends, all of my confused, maybe even sinful, guilty friends, all of my stressed out, worn out brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus has come, and in Him, there is always hope. This passage is like a drumbeat. This passage points over and over to Jesus, the burden bearer and the life giver. Paul is closing out Romans and the doctrinal peace, and in this last great push, Paul wants, he wants us to hear why we preach and we trust and we depend on Jesus. It's because... Jesus came to save and to sustain sinners just like you and me. Jesus came, not just to save, we got that, get that a lot in the Second Great Awakening churches like ours. Jesus came to save, but he also came to sustain sinners like you and like me. Let me show you what I mean. Let's just take the passage and put it apart like we always do. Here's the first thing I want you to see this morning. Number one, Jesus came to show God's truthfulness. You see that in verse 8. Jesus came to show God's truthfulness. Now, when we go through this passage, what Paul's going to do, right into the church at Rome, he is going to address both races in this mixed church. But in verse 8, he turns his attention right to the Jews. Notice what it does in verse 8. Look what he says. Let me read it to you. <clears throat> For I tell you 
that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Keep looking at it, verse 8. Jesus became a servant, a diakonos. is where we get the word deacon. Jesus became a servant to the circumcised. Why does he use that term circumcised? Not just to talk about the Jews, but to remind us that Jews were God's chosen covenant people. And Jesus came first to God's covenant chosen people to display that he was indeed the long-awaited Messiah. Hinted at in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, pointed at in Genesis chapter 22, and symbolized all through the Old Testament in the sacrifices in the temple. Verse 8 says, Jesus came to confirm. That is to say, they've all, already heard something. They're not sure whether or not they should believe it. And Jesus came to confirm for the religious people what they had always, what they had always heard about a Redeemer, that it actually happened to be true. That Jesus was the one symbolized by David, idealized by Daniel, and realized by the prophets. Jesus. And he did all that, according to verse 8, he did that so that he might show and then confirm the truthfulness and the promises of God, that he might fulfill what God said was going to happen from the very beginning. Now this truth, this beautiful doctrinal truth, has real devotional applications. I'd like to offer just a few a few words of application from the doctrinal truth. So let's turn our attention from doctrine and then how do we, what do we do with what we know here about truthfulness. I'll give you a couple of things to consider. One is, you should know that God's truth is truth. What I mean by that is that truth is not subjective. It can't be, look, I have my truth and you have your truth. That's subjective. If truth is subjective, then truth doesn't really exist. It can't be your truth or, and my truth. What we have, this is, I mean, this is what we believe. We start the service with it. We start the sermon with it. We believe that the Bible shows us its revealed truth. That God tells us in his word the truth about himself, who he is, is holy the Bible tells us the truth about mankind, that we are sinners separated from God, that we are sinners by choice, but we're sinners by choice because we're sinners by nature. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. It's in us. And that which is in us has separated us from God to such a degree that we need a Savior. The Bible tells us the truth about our need for a Savior, the truth about Jesus how he lived perfectly, died on the cross in the place of sinners. God raised him from the dead, and anyone who believes that will be saved. The Bible tells us that. The Bible gives us that truth. The Bible tells us that there is an eternity that all people, all men and women that have ever been born go to one place or another. That there are millions upon millions of people in hell right now that the only way to heaven is through faith 
in the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross. There's, there's truth. That, that's not subjective truth. That is God's truth, and God's truth is truth. That, that God is in, he is in perfect order with reality, and you can set your life by the reality that has been revealed to us in the Bible. I'll give you another application, I think, from verse 8. That is that God can be trusted. Even when it feels lonely, even when you feel forgotten, hey, look, even when your life feels ruined, some of you are not just on the brink of feeling ruined, you feel like everything's ruined. God's Word reminds us that He is not done. Now, some people will say, well, God's not finished writing my story. I don't like the sound of that because it feels like God's just sort of making it up as it goes along. God is still writing your story. That feels like open theism, that, that things can change in God's mind down the road. I would prefer that we say, God is not still writing your story. God has written your story. He's just not done reading it to you yet. It's already written. There's another application, I think, from this passage. We sang about it this morning. Uh, that is that our God is a triune God. Our God is a triune God. You think, is that a doctrinal application or devotional? That is both. We need to take doctrine that is good and, and, and receive it because it is good for us. It is devotional in nature. You'll, you'll see that, and when you read the text, you'll, you'll, he starts off in verse 8, you see God the Father and God the Son in verse 8. And then in verse 13, the end is God the Holy Spirit that empowers us to hope. And you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? Well, there's great security in that. I, I saw someone this week reading a new book that is out called Delighting in the Trinity. I can't remember who it is that was reading that, but it, I, I hear that's a great book, Delighting in the Trinity. Why do we delight in the Trinity? Because when you're a Christian, if you're a believer here this morning, when you're a Christian, here's something you can know. <clears throat> you can know that God the Father has planned your salvation. God the Son has accomplished your salvation. God the Spirit has applied your salvation. And that cord of three strands will never be broken. That's why we can delight in the Trinity that our God is a triune God. There's, a, there's an, another truth I'd like to apply to our hearts. And that is that God saves those who think they're already saved. God saves those, this is the church. God saves those who think they're already saved. Remember the context, Paul is writing to the Jewish people there in Rome. They are now part of the church. He's writing to Jewish Christians. Well, before they became Christians, they didn't think they needed a Savior. They were already religious. They were Jews. They were God's covenant people. They were relying on their own righteousness. Not realizing that before God... 
Even our best righteousness, the Bible says, is filthy rags. Here's the truth. As a church, as a Baptist church, especially an American Baptist church, especially a Southern Baptist church, our roots reach back into the second great awakening. A lot of the practices we do in a church don't come from the first great awakening. They come from the second great awakening. And that second great awakening, while it had wonderful results, sometimes there are things that residual hold over. If you're not careful, we get hung up on those things. For instance, God saves young men and women that come up in the church know the church lingo, have good manners, know how to act right in in public. They obey their parents that have all of, of the evidences of being good children and yet have never given their lives to Christ have never gone from being dead in sin to being alive in Christ by putting your faith in what Jesus has done on the cross. Have you given yourself your good self? Your your good self to Jesus. This, This passage reminds me that God saves those who think they're already saved. This is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to show God's truthfulness, and that truth that he shows us is found at the cross of Jesus. That's Paul talking to the Jews. Let's turn now to verse 9 and hear my second point. Number two, Jesus not only came to show God's truthfulness, number two, you'll see it in verse 9, Jesus came to display God's mercy. Mercy. You see that in verse 9. Mercy. Let's read verses 8 and 9 together. And as we read verse 8 and 9, we're going to land in verse 9. Pay real close attention to the first part of verse 9, and especially two words, glorify and mercy. Let me read it to you. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Here's what Paul is doing. Now think about the church he's writing to. He has two different diametrically opposed groups in this one little church. And Paul is reasoning that the two diametrically opposed people groups make up the totality of Christ's church. So, Jesus came as the Messiah for the Jews in verse 8, and Jesus came as mercy for the Gentiles in verse 9. Gentiles, that's any person that's not a Jew, that's, that's all of us sitting here today. And we are, in verse 9, we are saved by mercy. Mercy. You ought to write down the word mercy somewhere. Mercy. <clears throat> What is mercy? We, we, a lot of times put mercy and grace together. They, they do go together. Mercy, uh, sometimes we'll say, well, grace is you getting what you don't deserve, like a gift. 
Uh, that's grace. Mercy is you not getting what you do deserve. In other words, you did something bad, you don't get punishment. That's mercy. That's, that's one way of understanding it. Mercy is sort of the uh, uh, really kind twin sister of grace. Mercy is guilt being removed. Mercy is sin being forgiven. Mercy is your past being erased. Mercy is filthiness being cleansed. Mercy is you being trapped with debt and having that debt absolutely removed. Mercy. Mercy is a, mercy is a pride killer. Mercy is a worship creator. Mercy is a capital M monogrammed on your sinful heart. Mercy is a hot brand in the shape of a cross pressed into you so that you are identified as someone that actually belongs to Jesus. How do you know if you've received mercy? Well, the text tells us there in verse 9, let's, um, let look, let's look at verse 9, just that first phrase. You have to read it forwards and then we understand it backwards. So we read it from left to right, but we understand it from right to left. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Verse 9. <clears throat> And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Jesus came in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So you read it from left to right, it's glorifying God for his mercy. But if you read it from right to left, you find mercy that ends up glorifying God. Mercy found at the cross that leads to glorifying God. So let's, let's deal with that glorifying. What does is, what is glorifying mean? To glorify. That word glorify means um, value or, or, or weight or, or you might even say heft or expense. So if, if, you, if you have received mercy at the cross of Jesus, you end up Living your life to glorify God. So what does that mean? If we take the word glory and it means heft and weight and expense, it means when you receive mercy, you end up ascribing all the weight to God that he is due. To recognize his value, to see the goodness of God, to, to live your life, every part of your life, in light of God's weight. On your soul. I think that verse, verse 9, has some, um, some doctrinal truth that leads to devotional application. I'll give you just two of them. The first one is this. All we have is mercy. All we have is mercy. Sometimes I think we get this idea in our minds that God looked at us and saw how valuable we are, and he sees how valuable we are, and so in order to save that which was so valuable, he sent the greatest thing he had, which is his son, to come and save us because we are so valuable. That puts all the value on us. That doesn't show, that's not mercy, that's transaction. It's better if we really see what the Bible says about us, that we are sinners separated from God, that 
God looks at us and really there is very little in us that makes him want to love us, and yet he does. That's mercy. When you love that which is unlovable. You desire to save what you think is unsavable. Mercy. It's, it, it's, uh, it's important that we understand that we don't bring anything to our salvation, the preachers say, we don't bring anything to our salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. Mercy. Well, what makes mercy so unbelievable is not that we were so valuable that God saw we, our value and came to save us. No, it's that we weren't. And he saved us anyway. When you understand mercy, you know what it does? It keeps us patient. It keeps us from being critical. You stop being judgmental. You're no longer harsh because you realize, look, I'm just a product of mercy. I didn't deserve to be saved. God saved me even though I was a wretched sinner. It's good for us to remember, all we have is mercy. Makes us less critical of other people, mercy. Let me give you another um, consideration for this passage. <clears throat> Verse 9, when you think about the glory of God, it helps with pain. Because all pain has a purpose. All pain. All of it. So, so take a scale with two baskets on either side. And on one side, I want you in your mind, just emotionally, in your mind, load up all of your pain, all of the depression, take it all, the sadness, the, the terrible things that have happened to you, any confusion that you have, any, any suffering, any sickness that you have, any tragedy that's gone on, and pile it all in that basket on one side of that scale. Glory, weight, heft. Glory, glorify is understanding weight. On one side of the scale, you have every terrible thing that's ever happened. If you understand his glory, then you understand that his glory dropped into the basket on the other side will tip the scales and lighten your load. And the fulcrum of, of that scale is the cross of Jesus. There at the cross of Jesus is the fulcrum. That's where God's wrath was alchemized into God's mercy. And this text is telling us that, that Jesus came, not only to show God's truthfulness in the Bible, to confirm all the promises of the patriarchs, but for us Gentiles, it's good to remember, Jesus came to show us mercy, to, to, to display God's mercy. Those are two really beautiful things you'll find in verse 8 and 9, but let's keep moving and widen out our angle. Number three, <clears throat> Jesus came to create joyful worshipers. Jesus came to create joyful worshipers. Now, to see that, you've got to take verses 9 through 12 and put brackets around it. To see this, we've got to pan out a little bit. Normally, I go through the verse and just pick out words and that sort of thing. Let, let's back out a little bit and look at verses 9 through 12 as one collective thought. So here's what Paul has said. He has said some things truthfully in verses 8 and 9. Now what does he do? You'll notice in brackets, probably in your Bible, uh, you'll have the references, footnotes at the bottom. But what he does here, he just, like any good preacher does, he just starts quoting the Bible. 
verses 9 through 12, that is nothing more than Paul quoting the Old Testament. So, in verse 9, he quotes Psalm 18. Verse 10, he quotes Deuteronomy 32. Verse 11, he quotes Psalm 117. Verse 12, he quotes Isaiah chapter 11. Now, stay wide angle here. Stay wide. When you look at it in a wide sense, what you see there is a pattern. Paul is quoting from various parts of the Old Testament. Here's what, he's doing something here. Paul is doing something. The Old Testament is divided into large sections. You have law and history and psalms and prophets. If you take the whole Old Testament, that's how it's divided up. Law, history, psalms, prophets. And here's what Paul does. Paul takes a systematic approach through every section of the Old Testament. He's telling us that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He is the Lord of history. He is the subject of the Psalms. And He is the point of the prophets. But that's not all He's saying. Come down narrow now. We were wide. Come down narrow for a second with me. Come down and look at these words. Let's go through pick out a couple of words and see how the worship of God in Christ is defined. Look how Paul defines it in verse 9. The text says, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. You ought to write down the words praise and sing. Praise and sing. What is that? Praising and singing is the happy response to what God has done in your heart through His grace. It's why we worship. Worship is a response. It is the re worship is the reflection of mercy that has been given and life has been made better because of mercy. Maya Angelou said that she knows why the caged bird sings. Well, look, I know why the burdened Christian sings because we have new life in Christ and Him crucified. That's verse 9. Verse 10 gives us another word. Verse 10, you read it and he quotes and says, Rejoice, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. You've been brought in. It's not just Jews as the covenant people. Now, Gentiles, we're together. That word, rejoice, be glad, be happy. I even saw it defined somewhere to make merry. I'm not sure how to make merry, but be glad and be happy. Gentiles, that's me and you. We can do this when we actually start to reflect. It's good for you to reflect on the mercy that God has given you. It's, it's why our singing in church ought to be less dignified and more demonstrative. Because you have won something greater than the lottery, you have gotten a rebate on your life. That's verse 10. Verse 11 gives us something else. Notice what he says in verse 11. <clears throat> Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the people extol. Your Bible might say praise there twice. That first word is defined praise. That second word is the word extol. That's not a word I use very much, extol. What is to extol? What, what do we do when we extol the Lord? It's very similar to praise. Extol is really like praise. Extol is praise that drank a Red Bull. Extol is to enthusiastically give thanks to God for what He has done in us through Jesus. That's verse 11. Verse 12. 
quotes Isaiah in verse 12, and he says, and again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse, that's Jesus, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and in him, look what the Gentiles do, in him the Gentiles hope. Don't you love the word hope? Hope is that great Christian, hope is that great Christian word at Presta Sela Helms to write a book called Do the Next Thing. It was about the, the life of Elizabeth Elliot. It's about hope. And that word hope ties to the end, verse 13. Here's what Paul does. He, he links verse 12 and 13 with the word hope. Hope. And then look how he picked up in verse 13. That's my last point. Jesus came to fill up empty people. You know, verse 13 is worth an entire sermon. You could go through, you could go through verse 13 and each word and each phrase, and you could pick out every beautiful tree in this spectacular little forest. But let's just let's use it like, like Paul wrote it as a prayer wish for his mixed church. Look how it starts. Go with me to verse 13. You just keep your eyes on verse 13. Look how it starts. And then look how it ends. Starts with the God of hope, ends with abounding in hope. Notice what he says. From the God of hope comes all joy and all peace. It comes through believing and it happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, so here, here's where we can start landing the plane. So in Christ, end of verse 13, in Christ I can abound in hope. What does it mean to abound in hope? To, to have hope over and above what I need. Do you notice how on the, on the front end of verse 13, Paul takes us not to the God of peace, not to the God of love, not to the God of joy, but he prays to the God of hope. And his prayer in verse 13 is that God will, will work in us through Christ that we might abound in hope. That word abound, we might overflow in hope, that we might brim with hope, that we might go to the hope restaurant and eat all we can of hope and have so much hope left over, we're walking around with doggy bags full of hope. And that hope pushes. You know what it does? You're going to need it. That hope pushes out those bad emotions. That hope washes out all of the discouragements. That hope starts pushing on the depression that feels so heavy and the fear that's been there so long and the anxiety that you don't know where it comes from. It's this hope starts working on that. And the grumbling and the bitterness... And when the God of hope gives us abounding hope, when the God of hope gives us abounding hope, he does that in the person of Jesus, in the perfect life, the atoning death on the cross, and the resurrection of Jesus. It's why we worship on the Lord's day, because we're people of hope. Because Jesus came to save and sustain sinners just like you and me. Jesus came to show God's truthfulness, confirmed it, all the promises in verse 8. 
Jesus came to display God's mercy to Gentiles like you and me that he had no cause to do that. Jesus came to create joyful worshipers as people that have received mercy. We, we rejoice, we extol, we, we praise God. Jesus came to fill up empty people. May the God of hope in Jesus make you abound in hope. He does that at the cross, the cross of Jesus. Come to Jesus and have hope. You join me as we pray together with your heads bowed this morning as we go to the Lord. In a moment of reflection and prayer, after I pray, we'll sing one more song of worship. That is us as people saved by God's mercy, singing because of the hope we've been given in Jesus. If you find yourself without hope today, you need Christ. I don't mean just an, as an example. You need Christ for what he's done on the cross for sinners. We want to talk to you about that. We want to pray with you about that. After we sing, it might be good for you to, to send in an email, to text here at the church. The pastors will be around. We don't want to linger too long, but this is important enough to linger a little bit to talk about what it means to give your life to Jesus Christ. Father, thank you. Thank you for the grace you show us and give us in Jesus. Forgive us for not realizing the weight of your glory. May we see that is outweighing all the rest of the trouble we have. And you, as our God of hope, will you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, make us abound in hope. In Jesus' name we pray.